I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. Welcome to the show. It's the day after St. Patrick's Day. You doing okay? <laughs> you recovering all right, if that's your thing? I'm half Irish, so uh, I, I'm, I'm getting too old, I think, to do the St. Pat's thing anymore, but... Maybe, maybe someday. I didn't, I didn't do it this year, but, but maybe one of these days I'll get back to it. Anyway, this week on the show, we've got my friend uh, Marcy Ian. She's a co-host on The Social on CTV. Uh, just an all-around fabulous person. She, she's a former co-host of Canada AM and one of the first people who really got uh, into helping me uh, tell my story, to certainly in, in terms of uh, finding Mike. She, I went on Canada AM and, and told the story about uh, how he, this complete stranger in a light brown jacket saved my life, and, and Marcy Ian helped me to do that and uh, helped me to ask the public uh, for their help in finding this complete stranger that I knew next to nothing about and then brought cameras along, and, and, uh, and he came on the show then with me the next morning, uh, and it was the first time that I had met him, and I didn't even know he still existed. So she had a really important part of, uh, uh, of, of bringing my story full circle, and I'm so grateful to her for that. Uh, a big part of what we talk about in the show today and, and what Marcy and I talk about all the time is transitions and conquering challenges. She uh, reflects on on a tragic, a terrible school shooting uh, in Lalash, Saskatchewan, and how it deeply it affected her as a storyteller uh, and, and moving in, you know, from telling stories like that in, in the news uh, and in her personal life into now what she's doing in, in entertainment and in production on a daily uh, morning show. So we had a, a fabulous conversation and it really reminded me, uh, I've been reflecting on this a lot, this uh, a quote from the author Neil Gaiman, and uh, I'll paraphrase it, but he talks about this idea that the point of great stories uh, isn't to show you that monsters and dragons exist. Uh, it's to show you that monsters and dragons can be defeated. And I love that. That's that's really what, what Marcy and I talk a lot about today. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Without further ado, here's Marcy Ian on So-Called Normal. Uh, well, my name is Marcy Ian. Uh, I grew up in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. I am a journalist. Uh, I am co-host of CTV's The Social. Before that, I was a co-host and news anchor on Canada AM. I'm a mom of two, um, a wife. Uh, I'm an aunt, a really proud aunt, helped to raise my three nieces, who I'm so proud of. I call them my first batch of kids. Uh, I'm a sister. I've got one sister, uh, Lorraine. And, um, uh, you know, I'm just... I'm in a space right now where I'm feeling really good about things. Yeah. Things have just come together quite nicely. Yeah, Unex- we'll talk you, more sound, about that. you sound um, like that's unexpected or, or... Well, you just never know. Right. You just never know. A transition is an interesting thing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, a couple years ago when Canada AM ended, I knew that I would be fine. I knew I had a job. I just didn't mm. really know what the next chapter would look like. Right. And that is an interesting place to be. And the questions that one asks oneself. Right. You know, I, I was able to say, well, what do I want to do? Where do I want to go? And for the first time in my life and career to actually halt and take some time to think about that right. and then been given some opportunities to, to look at 
and and the social was just the best choice. Yeah, the yeah. best choice. So let's let's start at the start then, because I think you certainly rose to national fame on on Canada AM, uh, but you had been a broadcaster for a while before that too. So okay, so here's the deal: I am going to be fifty in July, and in July, you're not. You I don't am. Look- <laughs> I am. I'm going to be fifty in July. And when July comes, I will be celebrating 40 years of television. Wow. That is the situation. And I, it boggles the mind. And that's Wait a minute. Me. So you're turning 50, 40 years until. So you started because when I started you, as a kid. I've, I've never been great at math, but I think I can figure I started, that out. So at 10 years, <laughs> 10 years of age, years old. I will tell you this. So at 10 years of age, my dad um, is a retired educator. Mm. And at the time, he was a principal in a school in North York, Ontario. We lived in Scarborough. And there was uh, this particular school that he was at. One of the teachers there had a kid who did commercials and who was into theater. And this teacher spent some time with me. I was in the school sometimes. Teachers got to know me. An audition came up Mm. for a show. And she said to my dad, you know what? Marcy would be good for this. And he said, what do you mean? Like, I don't know about any of this stuff. And, you know, but it was an open call audition for a show called Circle Square. And they asked us to sing a little bit. I had to read some script. I had never done this before. They asked us to read some script. Then I got a call back. So So, what what was the show? What was the show about? So the show basically was, it was, it was 10, we had cast between 10 and 12 kids. It changed through the years. Um, There was a clubhouse. Uh, kids, um, us being one of them, would have a dilemma. So I would come into the clubhouse and say, you know, um, today at school, someone tried to force me to smoke mm. and I didn't want to. And all of a sudden, the show would be about peer pressure. Oh, like okay? a Degrassi precursor. It was, it was pre- Degrassi yeah. precursor, but there was also a religious perspective. It was a Christian oh, show. Oh, interesting. Okay. okay? Yeah. So it was, it was peer pressure. So we would have the clubhouse stuff that we would shoot in Toronto, mm-hmm. but to do what would become, it's almost like, it was almost like a dream sequence. When we had a problem, we would go to the friendly school janitor. Mm. I know it sounds a little different. <laughs> I know it sounds a little different, but we'd go to the school who would say, you know what? I have a story about, you know, a girl who is facing the same kind of thing that you are. Let me tell it. And every time his name was Dirk, every time he would tell those stories, mm-hmm. it would then become this piece of theater Mm. or this um, sequence that we would act out. And those things took place all over the place. I traveled a lot as a kid with that show. All over Canada or all over the city? No, we did a lot of taping in the West Indies. So I spent a lot of my childhood in Jamaica. I... Um, my, my parents said, yeah, you know what? This is all great and fine and dandy as long as you keep your marks up. Yeah. So the way it went... um, if there was a break for the holidays or March break, my breaks would always be extended, and that's when we would tape mm-hmm. our show. We would tape those sequences. We cut a l- couple of albums along the way. No this way. was my childhood. So you, were, you were a child star. It then. was well. I don't know if you want to call it that, <laughs> but that's what life was like. So yeah. we we shot the show on Saturdays. I think you know this early morning work ethic situation. Um, my my call as a kid was six a.m. Yeah, it was six a.m. Uh, my dad drove me every Saturday uh, down the DVP, uh, and we we shot until about four o'clock in the afternoon. And how and many episodes that of that did you? End oh up doing? my gosh, I was on that show for six years. Six years. Six wow. years. So it was my childhood from ten to sixteen. It was a lot. It was travel. It was trying to hold down my marks. Sure. It was another family because grew up with a whole set of kids and right. um, spent time doing some really interesting things. 
And then um, somehow, you know, my marks were still pretty good. And uh, I ended up going to Ryerson after that. And you studied journalism. I studied radio and television radio arts and, okay. at so, Ryerson. Um, now, you had been doing essentially theater prior to that. You were acting. I thought right? I was going to act. Right. Mark, I thought I was going to be an actor yeah. and entered Ryerson, which is why I did radio and television arts. Yeah. So entered Ryerson and I thought, mm, you know what, maybe I thought maybe writing as well. Mm-hmm. Always like to write. Mm-hmm. And in my first year of school, um, met a young lady who had come to the program from Alberta. We became really good friends. And she got a job at Channel 11 in Hamilton, Ontario, writing for the uh, news anchor writing newscasts. Mm. So she was she was the weekend writer and a job. There was another job that had come up. And so she said, Mars, I know you like writing. It's Hamilton. It's a little far. But, um, you know, there's a lot to be learned. And um, she put my name in. Mm. And so I went in and I had to audition for this writing job. <laughs> and they basically gave me some copy and I had to rework it. And mm-hmm. they had me watch a story and I had to write elements and, you know, VO and, and that kind of thing. And I ended up getting the job. So throughout my time at Ryerson, I was a news writer on the weekends uh, at Channel 11 in Hamilton. And then that news writing turned into reporting Mm -hmm. because it was a small enough shop. And this is what I loved so much about it. The opportunity was always there to do something. I mean, someone would call in sick and all of a sudden the writer gets launched or you're, you know, reporting on something. (laughs) Or can you edit? Or like that's what it was like. So So, when did you get pulled in front of the camera? So writing, this is what happened. So they didn't have a full time reporter working Mm -hmm. on the weekends. And they kind of made our position because there are two writers a hybrid position. So we were writers slash reporters mm-hmm. in case of emergency, right. basically. Yeah. So that's how I got pulled in front of the camera that, you know, one day I was there, you know, writing and all of a sudden, you know, there was a fire mm-hmm. that happened and it was, okay, Mars, go. And it was just another element that they would have somebody on camera for their weekend newscast. Right. Usually it was a lot of VOs, mm-hmm. um, a lot of voiced over reports because the anchor would come in later in the day. Mm-hmm. But with us there, we could actually put reports together that could be included in the show. Yeah. So we wrote them and we reported them. Wow. And did that. When I graduated from Ryerson, I continued to work there. And when I left Channel 11 in 97 uh, for CTV for the network, I was the Queen's Park reporter. So I was doing politics, um, covering the legislature, uh, but for Channel 11 in Hamilton, we had a bureau at Queen's Park. So really climbing the ladder then, starting at the bottom and climbing. Oh, my gosh. Listen, I'll tell you um, the Queen's Park story. My colleague uh, retired. So I was Mm -hmm. reporting in Hamilton. And he was retiring. I had filled in a couple of times for him. And I'll tell you, Mark, it was the one area where I thought, this is my weakness. Mm. I'm not altogether comfortable reporting on these stories. Right. Um, and it's who was premier at the time? It's hard to, Mike Harris Mike was Har- premier. Okay, yeah. So Mike Harris is premier. And I thought, it, the, the, the thing was, I um, I wanted to create something that people could connect to. Right. And I found it hard sure. to do that with political stories because, you know, people will get up and they will say their piece and announce, you know, another piece of legislature or something else. But how does this connect to the people that are going to be watching this piece, mm-hmm. you know, in the evening newscast? Mm-hmm. And that was my dilemma, bringing it home. So how, how, did, how did you resolve that? So I, my colleague was retiring and I thought, I'm going to ask if I can have a shot full time if I could maybe go and work at Queen's Park. So I went into my news director's office and I said, so um, how about trying me 
how about trying me for a while? If it doesn't work out, we can, you know, not try me. And this, this he, is fascinating because most, most people see something that they don't know how to do I and wanted they're to afraid conquer of it, it. right? I wanted you to, ran into it. I wanted to conquer it. Yeah. I, I wanted to get better and yeah. I didn't know any other way but to do it. Right. It wasn't something that could be taught. I wanted to be better and, mm. and, and report um, from a place where I felt that I could be better and needed to be. Mm. And I knew I had to be in the mix to do that. So that's what I did. And he said, okay. And he let me go there. John Best, uh, my news director. Took a chance Took on a you. chance <laughs> on me. And he let me go in. And it worked really well. And at that time, uh, it was an interesting time. Um, the reporter for Global at the time, uh, a young woman brilliant by the name of Monica Kim, Alison Vushnik, who's at Global now, was mm-hmm. there for CFTO. And I was there for Channel 11. Mm-hmm. So we were, the, we were these women, these right. young women who were at Queen's Park, and there weren't a lot of women. That was unusual. At that at time, time, it was unusual. Yeah. And so we helped each other a lot. Oh, nice. We shared clips. Should I be saying this? Yeah. We, shared, <laughs> we, shared, we shared clips. We shared yeah. information. But yeah. we really lifted each other up. Wow. And mm-hmm. it was actually Monica. Monica, who uh, was asked to come to CTV for an audition and then told them about me. Hmm. So how did you actually, since you touched on it, yes. um, you know, you mentioned being among a small group of women at Queen's Park at yes. the time and, and probably working, doing the work you were doing, especially it sounds like an ambitious um, young woman at the time. Um, what about being a black woman in the industry? Yeah. Uh, how did that impact your, yeah. your career, if at all? Well, of course. I mean, because it's perspective and it's how you report. Mm. Um, We all, you know, come from somewhere. And Mm -hmm. so where I come from and who I am, you know, reflects my perspective. Mm. I saw it as a complete advantage because I could bring my point of view, my perspective, which really wasn't pervasive. There weren't a lot of black people, Mm -hmm. a lot of minorities working in the industry. You could probably count us on one hand. Do you think that you ever encountered discrimination? Were you ever treated differently? I don't know. And Mm. I say that, Mark, because you don't ever really know why you didn't get a job. Right. Right? Like, I don't know. I can't say, hey, this person discriminated against me because I'm a black woman. Right. But I think sometimes, well, did it take me longer Mm. to get here? Yeah, it did. Mm. Do I think that I was just as good as everybody else coming up with me at the same time? Absolutely. Do I think in some cases I was better? I absolutely do. So whether the color of my skin had anything to do with that, I don't know. What I do know is I'm here now and I'm loud. <laughs> well, and it seems to be working out I'm well for you. I'm so loud. Far. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I do know that, yeah, right? And yeah, it's yeah. also about also about knowing that there there wasn't a ton of me around. There were trailblazers that came before me, mm. absolutely. But there wasn't a ton. Of, and so for me, being able to pull others up and be mm. here and say, "Hey, I'm here," which means you can be here because if you can see it, you can be it. Yeah. That. That has meant everything to me. Yeah, yeah. Where did you get your ambition? I mean, it's, it was it genetic or was it from one of your parents? Was it because it seems like you're just so driven in the in this respect? I just, um, I just knew that you know, I'm sure that there are people more talented. There are people that are more talented, but I wasn't going to be outworked. I'm, I'm not so sure though that I talent wasn't is that talent isn't always a thing. I think. Even people are uh, what do you think not it so. Is? Well, I think it's it's persistence first yes. of all. It's perseverance. It's perseverance. Yes. It's mindset in some ways. Being able to pivot when when you're presented. Being with able a, to get back up an obstacle, get back up yeah. again. That resilience. I, my parents. Mm. So 
my parents came to this country more than 50 years ago so that my dad could come to school. Mm. So background Trinidadian. My parents married. Um, my sister was born in Trinidad. Uh, my dad uh, had his eye on U of T. Mm. And so came to this country uh, with my mom. They actually left my sister in Trinidad for a bit yeah. with grandparents. Uh, tried to make their way here. My dad attended uh, U of T, and um, upon finishing uh, his degree there, got a scholarship to Harvard. Wow! And this is you know early sixties. Yeah. This is this is civil rights and and all sorts of stuff. And he did his master's in French there. Um, he's extraordinary. So mm. is my mom. I can't imagine, and I've gone back to Boston. I was actually trying to, I was working on a piece on my dad and, and um, just haven't finished it. But mm. I, I, can't, I can't imagine um, being uh, heavily accented uh, <laughs> uh, black men in Boston mm. at that time sure. and attending Harvard U- University, coming from this island, yeah. right? And all of a sudden, here you are. But he won this scholarship called the Woodrow Wilson Scholarship, and he got to choose any any university in North America to attend uh, to do his master's, and he chose Harvard. Oh. And so when you come from something like that, and my my parents couldn't be in school at the same time, so my mom at the time uh, worked for the government. She was a clerk, the provincial mm-hmm. government, and had aspirations of of being an accountant. And so at the age of... Oh, well, in her late 30s, because my dad was then settled and got his first job and my sister was doing well and then I was born. Uh, My sister is seven years my senior. Mm -hmm. Um, My mom had her turn and my mom studied accounting and worked, Mm. continued to work and got her CGA, became a certified general accountant and then became a tax auditor for the provincial government and did that uh, for 25 years until she retired. And you and your sister were still young when she was doing so this? So I was young, yeah. but my dad was teaching. He was right. an educator. Right. So he was able to step in and take care of well, us. And this and is what I was wondering. Yeah, all of that. That's what was. This yeah. is what happened. So my mom would work during the day as my dad would, mm-hmm. but having the hours that he did mm-hmm. uh, as an educator, he was there to you know make dinner and take care mm-hmm. of us and you know do all the things. He was kind of two parents at once so that my mom could go to school and also work. Mm -hmm. She would study at night. I remember clearly my mom studying at night. I remember her robe. I remember her being in the basement. I remember having to be quiet. And then she would go to bed earlier. Sometimes, you know, we were still up. My dad would take care of us. She'd wake up early to study before work and did this degree, but it was over an extended period of time because she was working you know, on it on a part-time basis. So was able to do all of that um, with my dad's support. And my sister, being seven years older, was kind of like a pseudo-mom as well. So she took care of me a lot. And, you know, you come from something like that. You know, this is... This is the quintessential immigrant story. Yeah. You come from something like that, and yeah, you better get it done. Well, that kind of work. You need to get it done. Yeah, that work ethic, especially reading late into the night, All reading, studying early in the morning. That's something that you started to get to know when you got the call from Canada AM, right? So very well. Yeah. So Canada So when did AM. that, yeah, when did that happen? Oh, my goodness. So I returned uh, from Halifax and was doing a hybrid shift where I was reporting a couple of days um, on then Lloyd's show, Lloyd Robertson's show for the National News, and I was anchoring um, a couple of days on CTV News Channel. 
And those days that I was anchoring on News Channel, it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And that Friday meant that I was doing the news for Canada AM, mm. but just once a week. Right. Uh, the job became available, and still AM was taking its news from News Channel. Mm-hmm. So it would be throwing to me, going, and now here is Mercy over at News Channel with the news. And everybody else was in a separate studio. Oh, okay, yeah. And at some point along the way, probably, I don't know, six months into it, a year into it, they thought, you know what? The chemistry might be good. <laughs> maybe, I think maybe, you know, we should try bringing Marcy into the studio. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And and that is how um, Seamus, Jeff, Bev, and I were born. So you, you move back from Halifax, back to Toronto, mm-hmm. and then you start waking up at three in the morning or whenever it was oh that you woke up. Oh my gosh. So here's the thing, right? Because people would go, so what a great shift, you yeah. know, six to 9 a.m. It's great, right? <laughs> and then you have the rest of the day. And then we'd all school them. Yeah. Like everybody that's done a morning shift, right? will say, here's the situation. When I was the news anchor on the show, it's just the news, I was in there earliest mm-hmm. because we had to look at what happened the night before. Mm-hmm. We had to look at international headlines. We had reporters in different bureaus that we could tap into for our newscast. Mm-hmm. So whether it was overseas, the Israeli bureau, whether it was the UK bureau, we had to check in with those reporters, see what was happening, and see if we could incorporate any of those stories into our newscast. Mm-hmm. So I was generally there uh, between 3.45 and 4.15. That's at work. Mm-hmm. That's at work. Mm-hmm. Then we would have our editorial meeting and decide you know, which stories were going to make it, what we would do uh stories that were breaking that we needed to cover. And that's another thing. If there was breaking news, it mm-hmm. was even earlier than that because sometimes we'd break into news channel and just go live, right? right? right. With any breaking news scenario. And that happened several times. Mm. Um, so there was that. Then, then the live show, of course, was three hours, right? And then it was after the show because sometimes and m- many times there were interviews that were taped Mm-hmm. There were, you know, celebrity guests that were in town. Uh, there were people that weren't going to be in town the next day. So we would pre-tape them. Mm-hmm. There were um, performances to watch, movies to watch, because what if we had an actor coming in, mm-hmm. want to see their work? W- authors coming in, want to read the material, want to mm-hmm. read the work. It was a matter of being on call, as I look at it now, all the time. Because yeah. anything could happen. And we were delivering the news in the morning when people woke up. Right. We had to be there. It had to be fresh. Well, and even then, I mean, Canada AM was an institution. It was the highest rated morning show. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of competition, granted, but who, who would want to go up against Canada AM anyway? So did you ever have a moment of intimidation or doubt or, or fear coming into that? Or did you think, no, nah, I got this? I, <laughs> I didn't. And here's why. Because you don't see the people watching, right? right? You've been in, Mark, the Canada AM studio. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a it's a lovely studio, but it's intimate yeah. because it is like you know it was like family, right? Mm-hmm. It was a matter of you know the camera people you've worked with for years, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, a, a floor director, uh, your colleagues and mm-hmm. co-hosts. You don't see who's watching, yeah. so very quickly interviews that you do. Are like the one we're doing right now. You're yeah. just talking. Just on it's the just couch that, or at a table. Just on the couch yeah. or at the table or, you know, on the deck outside or in the music studio. Mm-hmm. That's what it was like. So you and you don't, don't realize really, there's millions of people no, watching. Yeah. You no, know, until you hear from them. Right. Now and, again, right? <laughs> and I'm sure you did. We did all the time. Yeah, all the time. You know, all yeah. the time and encourage that too. But yeah. it's just that you don't see that. So there's no need right. for the nerves or anything because it's this. It's what we're doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. I had the opportunity, the privilege to come on the show five times. 
Uh, I only got mugs from three of them, however, and they're still on my shelf. <laughs> maybe maybe I shouldn't have said that either. But they are serious. <laughs> those mugs? Oh, my They gosh. were given to me. I didn't just pocket them. <laughs> but anyway. Um, but yeah, that's right. They're collector's items now. So, you know, so many stories. And it was very much a news show. It wasn't a, it wasn't entertainment. It wasn't morning entertainment, right? It, it was a morning news show. Um, but you still brought, uh, I distinctly recall, a, a humanity to that, a certain, um, like you said, from your earliest days, that connection between the person, the viewer, and the story. Thank you for that, so Mark. What were some of the stories that really stand out in your mind from that period in your, your career? There are so many, but you know the stories that really stood out for me and that were hardest for me to report involved kids. Mm. And usually kids getting hurt. Yeah. They resonated. When Sandy Hook happened, yeah. um, there was an extraordinary... Um, young woman who lost a son in, in, in that shooting incident. And she came on because she had a book. And the book was in remembrance of him. Mm-hmm. The book was about um, trying to find some sort of healing, trying to find power in her son's story, trying to do right by her son, by bringing his story to others. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, to government and change legislation or fight for change. Mm -hmm. She was extraordinary. And the whole idea of pivoting to forgiveness, Mm. the whole idea of finding empathy in a situation as heinous as that was absolutely extraordinary. And I, I believe in, in uh, Michelle Obama's new book, she said that that was the worst moment of Barack Obama's presidency. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, I, 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 can't see it any other way. Yeah. How do you even begin to understand something like that? And then even the aftermath of mm. that, the protests that happened, the things that those parents had to endure because it wasn't always kind. And that must have been one of those events, too, where it would have been wall-to-wall live coverage. It right? was wall-to-wall yeah. live coverage. And those are hard. As a reporter, yeah. those are hard things to cover. How do you deal with that? How do you? How do you? Get I used it? to. I used to have um, what I called quilt days, mm. and on those days, you know, when a Sandy Hook breaks or a shooting happens in the La Saskatchewan at a school, mm. uh, I would go home and uh, get under my quilt for a while and just be still. And because I, I was home during the day when nobody else was. Everybody else was, you know, at school or work. I would just need still. I would need quiet, just rest, to just get away, just mm-hmm. get away from the headlines, get away from all of that, and just try to unpack it um, and try to find solace uh, in some way. Those were hard days. Yeah. You know, I've never been the kind of reporter, whether it's right or wrong, um, I'm not neutral. Mm. I, I did my job. But on the inside, I was never neutral. Right. Do you think any reporter really truly can be? No. You know, we say we are. Right. Um, Our stories reflect neutrality, but that doesn't mean we don't feel it on the inside. Right. And I always felt it on the inside. I always carried things with me. Always. And I look at it now and I think, well, you know, um, maybe it's not such a bad thing. Mm. Maybe that's where the connectivity happens because I'm not a robot just spewing out a story Mm. because maybe I care. Yeah. Yeah. 
How do you, I mean, most of the news is bad news. There's very few newscasts that are the good newscast, uh, I guess, until you move over to the social where you do some lighter, some lighter things, but you also tackle heavy topics there too. So how do you um, find the balance in your own life between being inundated every single day with these horrible news stories and then trying to find the good in people and the good in society? And Listen, you know, in our industry, um, and I don't think that it's changed much. There's this saying that if it bleeds, it leads. Right. Right. And it's not that there isn't good news. We just don't always report on it. Right. And I know that. And so for me, that's where, you know, volunteerism comes into play. Mm. That's where charities come into play. That's where spending time with kids in a mentoring program comes mm-hmm. into play. Mm-hmm. Because there is a lot of good news. We just don't always focus on yeah. it. And we need to focus on it more. Yeah. Because you're right, there's enough of the bad stuff. But there's a lot of good. And there are yeah. so many good people out there. We just need to highlight them sure. more. Well, tell me about Lalash then. Because that's something, a tragedy, that you tried to do something good with, right? But this goes into the whole area of where I don't let go. Right? <laughs> right? right. This goes into that whole area of... You should have just been reporting on the story and left it there, right? That's that's where this goes into, and I couldn't leave it there. Well, can you tell us a little bit about Ab- the background and, and Absol- what you did? Absolutely. So it'll be three years in January. Um, a student at Denny High School in Lalash, Saskatchewan, went home at lunch, and upon returning to school, his way to school, uh, went to his cousin's home and shot and killed them, uh, two of them, continued to the school um, and shot and killed a teacher, a teacher's aide in the office area, and then shot several other people, uh, some of them quite seriously. And it was a devastating story. Our reporter, uh, Jill Makashan, Um, CTV National News reporter did an amazing job bringing the story of Lalash and Dene High School to Canadians. But it was just one of those stories that would not leave me. It was more than Mm -hmm. a story. And maybe because um, of my dad's background as an educator, probably because if I wasn't doing this job, I'd be teaching myself. And also because Indigenous affairs have always been very close to my heart. And so here was this story that combined all of that. One day, this was news headlines for a week, two weeks, and one day the cover of the Globe and Mail had what they were calling a forgiveness circle on the front. They were telling the story of how the kids at Dene had um, decided to have this circle because the feeling was if one person had done something wrong in the community, that everybody was to blame. Mm. And there were rumblings that that kid had said he had been bullied. And so they all came together seeking forgiveness as a community. And so what it looked like, it looked like a huge bonfire and kids were sitting around it. And I thought, my gosh, again, pivoting to forgiveness. Mm. How extraordinary is this? And then I also noticed that one of the kids, a couple of them were wearing caps, but one of the kids, you could prominently see it, was wearing a Toronto Raptors cap. And I am a huge basketball fan and in particular a Toronto Raptors fan and so I um I thought wow and I I wonder if you know the Raptors have seen this and uh, here's where I didn't know what to do I had interviewed Masai Ujiri a couple of times we we weren't friends I didn't quite know how to reach him so I started 
basically making up email addresses. <laughs> I tried Messiah.Ujury, Mujury at Raptors.com, all sorts of things. And I put shooting, school shooting in the subject line. Mm. And I asked if I could speak to him. And one of them worked, Mark, because my phone was ringing not too long after that. And he said, how can I help? So we started to meet. And we started to come up with a plan as to how we could help this community. And we thought we better get in touch with them first. So I start calling. But the administrator, the principal, Greg Hatch, uh, at the time, isn't taking my calls. And now, as, do you think it's because he's afraid you're media? Yes. Or, yeah. So as Greg describes it, right. he said I'd called several times and his admin assist, as he was walking by one day, goes, it's that Marcy woman again. <laughs> She's calling again. And so he said, all right, put her through. Mm. And that was just it, that the media had descended upon, mm. you know, Dene and Lalash. And then, you know, when the story ended, everything ended, except the bullet holes were still, mm. you know, lodged. Uh, in the front door of the school and people were traumatized and there just hadn't been a lot of help. Uh, Greg, by the way, is an amazing man. He's a legend there. And when the tragedy happened there, um, Greg was in the school that day, but frankly was transitioning to retirement. He uh, was in the school as a consultant He had stepped down as principal and was looking to retire, but still wanted to be part of the school community and was Mm. consulting with with other schools in the province and was there that day uh, that the shooting happened. Um, The entire administration, the principal at the time, vice principal, they all stepped down and went on mental health leave Mm. when that shooting happened. And they asked Greg to come back and run the school and to help with the healing process of that school, which is why he was acting principal. And he's the person that talked to me that day. He said to me, listen, um, Marcy, we don't you know, want a handout here. We do need help. But if you really want to understand us, you have to come. Mm. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you, you need to come here. And I said, good point. <laughs> okay. Uh, and Messiah and I got on a plane. And we flew to Fort McMurray. And then took a puddle jumper from Fort Mac to Lalash. And Greg um, and his team were, were on the ground to meet us when we landed. And then short drive to the high school. We spent the day there. And uh, we, we went in and out of classrooms that day. Spent time with Greg and his teaching staff and talked to kids, Maasai. Um, we had a, an assembly and he spoke to the kids that day. He was amazing. And then uh, we got back on a plane and sitting in the Fort McMurray airport um, eating dinner, uh, we decided that we wanted to do something more and came up with this idea. And so I said, well, you know, what if we bring some kids to Toronto? And I said, that's a great idea. I said, we'll get in touch with you know, people we know who can help and, and, and let's do this just so that you know, Masai's whole thing is dream big, right? So mm-hmm. it's dreaming beyond your boundaries. So we had this idea and we said we were going to work on it. So got back to Toronto. This is where you know, it gets even more interesting. So we've got the trip planned. The kids are coming. Everything's set. We've got everything set. And it is Boxing Day. And I'm sitting on my bed and I'm reading this book that has inspired me greatly called Books for Living. And it just talks about kindness and what we, more we can do and, and that kind of thing. And I start to think about what more we can do. And I think to myself, you know, uh, because I covered it, I know that the Indigenous people in this country came out for this prime minister. They ran out of ballots on reserve because they didn't expect people to come out 
and cast their votes. Mm -hmm. And they did. And the first time we went to Dene, we went to Lalash, we didn't tell anybody. This time we thought, you know what? The kids are coming here. They can tell their own story. It's not for us to tell their story. They can tell their story. But I did think that it would be great for somebody to speak to them and so that they could be heard, that they deserved an audience. And so... um, I, I knew uh, that Katie Telford, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, followed me on Twitter, so I was able to, I was able to DM her. <laughs> and on Boxing Day, I DM'd Katie and said, Hi, happy holidays. Um, would it be possible to talk to you about something? And I explained this entire story that I'm telling you to her, except that I added that the kids would be coming uh, in, in the next month, in mm-hmm. January, to Toronto, and they are the future of our country as well, and they deserve a voice, and they deserve a seat at the table, and they are still hurting. Mm-hmm. And where else in this country would there still be a high school riddled with bullet holes? Um, you know, after all of this, there's so much trauma there, and this whole idea of out of sight, out of mind, and, and that they deserve this much. Um, would it be possible for them to talk to somebody? And then that was it. I just left it, left mm-hmm. it out there. I went back to work. It must have been the 4th or 5th of January. And all of a sudden, this email pops up, and it's the director of operations for the PMO who says, can I give you a buzz? And he said, Marcy, I I think we can do something here. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, the prime minister is on a speaking tour, and he was landing in Toronto Mm. at that time. Mm. So I had to sit with that for a bit. Um, so how the, many how many kids are you talking here ten, that you brought in? Ten kids, kids came, yeah. and Greg and Martha Moore and his admin assist mm. came as well. Mm-hmm. And um, it was amazing. They flew in. It was on a Thursday. They uh, came and visited us on the social. Mm-hmm. They were all in the front row. They had a microphone. They were able to talk about the past year mm-hmm. and what had happened. Uh, Masai was on that day as well, and the ladies interviewed us like we were guests. <laughs> And and we told our story, but more importantly, the kids told their stories. Mm. And then later that afternoon, a bus took them to BioSteel Center. They had a wonderful um, uh, Indigenous lunch prepared. Walked into BioSteel, you could see, welcome Dene High School and flashing (laughs) lights everywhere, every board. It was lovely. And then the kids waited in the players' locker room as the prime minister of this country came through the doors with press behind him, um, Masai and I, mostly Masai, gave a tour um, of BioSteel. And then the three of us walked into the players' locker room, closed the door, and uh, the prime minister had a discussion with these kids that lasted some 45 minutes. And they were able to share everything. And he shared back. And it was an amazing experience. Then those doors opened. Um, the former coach of the Raptors, Dwayne Casey, was there, shared his story of growing up in segregated Kentucky. And so there was a Team Casey, a Team Trudeau, and the kids got to play basketball. <laughs> it was great. There was the matinee on Sunday. They mm. met all of the players. They were recognized at both of the games. They were on court holding the Canadian flag for one of the games. It was amazing. Then we story, put them yeah. on a plane. <laughs> we put them on a plane the Sunday, and they went back. And we repeated that last year, uh, and we're getting ready to do it again really? uh, this wow. year because wow. we don't want it to stop. I should say, too, the Raptors a couple of months ago uh, held a session there 
where they just went and coaches went and uh, they opened the school and they played basketball and um, they learned the stories of various players and coaches and they, you know, Greg says it was just extraordinary. Yeah. Have you heard from the, any of the kids or the people in this community what this meant, meant to them? I keep in touch yeah. and um, I talk to, to them on a weekly basis. Really? It wow. has meant so much. One of the kids is now going to school here. Mm. Uh, he's in a film program here. I'm so proud of him. Have to catch up with him. Many of the kids uh, are not finished high school. They haven't graduated yet. Mm. Um, but hopefully they see that there are opportunities. They have my phone number. They mm. have my email. We're on social media. So I keep track. And I talk to Greg like a couple of times a week. Mm. I, I texted him today. Yeah. <laughs> um, on January 18th, um, they will be uh, reopening parts of the school. Mm. So the school continued to be open, but a lot of it um, sustained damage. And three, so and three, three years later? Four years three later. years later, oh. on January 18th, uh, they will be um, reopening uh, areas that have been refurbished and rebuilt. Mm. And um, I hope to be there. I hope to, yeah. uh, to get there for that. Yeah. It's incredible what you've been able to accomplish both in your pro professional career, but, you know, to be able to give back to this community in this way that obviously has affected you so much. You know, it's incredible. I hope that this has repercussions across the country because yeah. what we've been able to do with Alash, and we lobbied on behalf of this sure. uh, this community. We, we, we There are a couple of Ottawa trips where, yeah. where we lobbied and we said we have to do better. You yeah. know, we have to do better as a country. We, we hope that this has repercussions across the country yeah. and also this, the whole idea that, you know, maybe if you pick up the phone, Mm. And just maybe if you reach out and try to do something, you can make a difference. Yeah. Because really, I didn't know that people would say yes. Right. I didn't know if people would respond. Well, but, but I mean, it's, anyway. also, it's also partly, uh, I, I think it's interesting to see the mix of your, your trademark persistence coming back again and again. Yeah. Um, but also, you had a whole career of building up a whole lot of capital, uh, yeah. a whole lot of respect. I'm seeing and, that now, Mark. Oh, you're seeing it now, but it's true. You're, it's you're, not... you're Marcy Ian. Like, this is people, when you speak, People listen. When you approach these people, they're going to listen. And I think it's because they know that you're going to handle it well. But look at where I am now. And, yeah. and this is what I mean about full circle. Yeah. I, I, I get to be on a show now where I can voice my opinion and do things like this. Well, And, and, and do th things like this. Yeah, so this is it. So you mentioned that during um, your your involvement in uh, Lalash, yes. uh, you left Canada AM. So this was big yes. news in Canada within the industry and really everywhere because this was, what, 40 years or something on the air? 43. 43 yeah. years on yeah. the air. Kind of overnight, yeah. uh, at least in, from, a, from a viewer's perspective. And I think from... It seemed that way to many, I know. It seemed that way, yeah. But yeah. it just is over all of a sudden. Uh, you know, what was that like for you having been there for 14 years and then needing to move on like that? It was, you know what, I, I, I think everybody saw the tape. Mm. Um of of the morning that we signed off, mm -hmm. and um, I cried you know, when I, I watched. Well, I well, listen, <laughs> I can't imagine you. Well, listen, I did, and I and I did yeah. uh, on the air, and yeah. and what was happening? It was the last commercial break, and um, I was doing a deep dive under the desk because I was sobbing. Mm. I, I, it was really emotional for all of us. And then Bev looked at me. There's 20 seconds left, and says, "Okay, Mars, you know, um, do what you normally do." And what I had normally done for years was say goodbye, Canada. And I could hardly get it out. Yeah. And it literally was, goodbye, Canada. And we went to black. Yeah. I could hardly get it out. And while that was, um, it was painful in yeah. many ways, it was also liberating 
in now, many ways. Now, you didn't know, though, what you were going to do next. I mean, you had some assurance I that you knew would do that something. I was Yes, I knew that I was going to be in production, right. but I didn't know what that looked like. Right. And so it was a time where I just, I went away for a bit, frankly. I, I took some time off. Yeah. Um, and my boss was kind enough to allow me to do that, just to kind of, you know, figure out what was what. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know for sure what I was going to be doing. But I'll tell you, and I think Blaze's reaction um, really encapsulates everything so, so well. When I told her that there were going to be changes and that, you know, Canada AM had ended, mm. she started crying. Really? And I said, Blazy, you know, like, what's going on? And she said, does this mean you're going to be home for breakfast? <laughs> right? Yeah. Because her entire life, I had been gone in the morning. Yeah. She would wake up and I wasn't there. Did you even think of that? I didn't even. And I thought, (laughs) I'm such a good mom. You know, I'm home early. I'm home when she gets home from school. I didn't see it through her perspective. Does this mean you're going to be home for breakfast? Yeah. And I just stopped in my tracks. And I said, absolutely, Blazy. It means I'm going to be home for breakfast. And guess where I am every morning now? Yeah. I'm home for breakfast, right? <laughs> and and I'm home after school too. But that person, her entire life, my kids, I was pregnant with, you know, both of my kids mm-hmm. um, during the run of Canada AM. So mm-hmm. that's all she knew, right? Mm-hmm. Like I wake up and mom's not there. And this whole new chapter has been extraordinary. Yeah. I get to learn. I get to, there's a newness still. Right. Was it a, a shift for you, though, to go from a, a morning news yes. show into something more yes. entertainment-based? Yes, because yeah. it's always been about everybody else. Right. Right? When I right. sat down and talked to you, Mark, it was your story. Yeah. I would, you know, throw questions out, but then I would listen. My job is to listen. My job is to ask questions that, you know, enable you to share your story. Right. Now I'm sharing mine. Now you get to talk. <laughs> now I'm sh- now it's now it's oh Look out. so I'm supposed to get on the mic and tell you about me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That that's a completely different thing because my yeah. whole career and what I love so much was to talk to other people about their stories and understand mm-hmm. how they got to where they are and and their journeys and all of a sudden mm-hmm. I'm talking about mine. Mm-hmm. So that's been the biggest change. But now you've also you know one of the things that I've noticed especially you know working with media on mental health and suicide in particular which is my area. Yes. There's a real Canada I'm notwithstanding um, at the time there's a real hesitation to go into that kind of heavy stuff in a in an otherwise lighter format, right? But you guys have been trying to tackle some of these meteor issues as well. How do you yes. f- how do you how do you make that sale? I guess, or do you have pretty broad? It's not. Over it's not happens? even a sale because yeah. who? D- let's be honest about this. Who doesn't have a story? Sure. Who doesn't have a family member? Yeah. Who doesn't have a friend? Who themselves? You know, who doesn't have someone close to right. them who has gone through this in some? capacity. And that's what our show is. We share our stories, right? And we share those stories of others. And it is called the social. So people reach out to us with Mm. story ideas. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, they're stories just like that. And so we get these stories and we disseminate them and go, okay, wow. Okay. If they're willing to share or we'll have an author come Mm -hmm. on, or -hmm. we'll have someone else come on, someone like you come Mm -hmm. on and share. So it isn't even a sales job. It's just life. And we're just presenting life as it is warts and all, hurts and all, mm. mental illness and all, as Canadians, we go through it. Yeah. And Bell's done such a good job. You They've know, done a, uh, you know the face of... A, I'm so proud yeah. of the job 
you know? Through Bill Let's Talk, Mental Health Awareness in Canada over the last, I guess, six years, whatever it's been, seven years. It's it's been a tide change. It's been incredible. You felt it, right? I felt it, yeah. You know, we would never be having this kind of conversation or putting that kind of stuff out there to audiences prior to that. It just didn't happen. And I've been involved in the field for that long, so I've been able to see the the the, the That's why I'm asking you. It's night and day. It, It really is. Now, that said... I think we're doing a much better job of having these kinds of conversations. I'm not sure how deep they're going. We're still in a place where we're just raising awareness about, you know, diagnoses and challenges and struggles. But that's partly why I want to do this show is, well, let's go a little bit deeper than mm-hmm. that. You know, everybody mm-hmm. has struggles and challenges, mm-hmm. but what do you learn from it? What do you what do you take mm-hmm. from it? How does it change you? Mm-hmm. You know, for, for me... My, the whole point of my story is that I didn't kill myself. So let's talk about everything that happened after. Right. But there was a long period of time that I still really needed to sit with the fact that I, I, I tried and, and I wanted to. And there was a point in my life where I couldn't see anything else outside of that. You know, but but then when I really reframed and it's and I heard this theme and what you were talking about a lot, too, and how you frame your experiences. Yes. That's when things changed for me. That's right. You know, I, I wouldn't take back the even the hardest things that I've been through for the world because they taught me so much. Mm-hmm. And then there's the whole idea of when you put your voice mm-hmm. out there mm-hmm. and it takes such courage, your voice and your story out there, the people that you impact, I'm mm-hmm. sure you've seen that yeah. because you bravely have said, listen, this is what happened to me. This is what I was going to do. I was going to take my own life. And this is why. And here's how I felt when you put that out there. Mm. then people respond. They respond to that truth and that honesty. I'm sure they have. That's that's my favorite part of this is that, and I, and I try to remind people of this all the time, and sometimes myself, that the story isn't actually about me, that the story is a, a, a window, it's a doorway to help other people share. That's the whole point. I mean, what happened to me has already happened. That's in the past. Mm. But some people haven't been able to open that up yet. And, and this is what I've seen. Well, I mean, this is what you do every day. You open that window for people to be able to share their story and to be able to open up those conversations. And and now I'm so glad that you get to be loud about your story, too. <laughs> really loud. <laughs> really too loud. loud sometimes. They call me an oversharer. An over... Hey, you can always fix it in post. <laughs> <laughs> Marcy Ian, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, anytime and always. Thank you so much, Mark. Well, that's it. That's my interview with uh, the incredible, the fabulous, the beautiful Marcy Ian. Uh, I had so much fun talking to her, and, and she's just such a special person. So thank you, Marcy. You can see Marcy Ian uh, almost every day on the social, on CTV. Uh, so please look her up. And don't forget, while, while you have your phone out, to subscribe to the podcast, like it, leave a rating, share it with others. Those, those likes and shares really do mean a lot to us. Uh, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and all major podcast platforms. You can also visit us over at markhennick.com slash so-called normal. You can follow me on social and talk to me. Let me know about uh, what you thought of the episode or, or who you want to hear me talk to next. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Mark Hennick at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K. Uh, I'll remind you too, if you need, uh, want to check out seven free days of highly qualified psychotherapy, uh, online, accessible, available whenever you want, head over to betterhelp.com slash mark. Uh, enter the promo code mark. Uh, And you can get that free trial of of, uh, online psychotherapy. So go check that out. Thanks again for listening to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. (laughs) 